0: turn there to Luke chapter 7. When I was thinking about what to preach on, I was drawn to this story because of just how incredibly powerful it is. And more than anything else, this story reveals the heart of God for sinners and how an encounter with him transforms lives. So we will look at this passage, and the thing is that I want to say at the outset, I Don't have an outline for us uh, because I really believe the story speaks for itself. And so this morning will be a little bit different than what you're used to. But I thought rather than disrupt the flow of the story, we'll go through it together and we'll highlight some points in the process and we'll draw some application at the end. Okay, so Luke chapter 7 beginning in verse 36. Follow along as I read. And kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, "If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus, answering, said to him, "Simon, I have something to say to you." And he answered, "Say it, teacher." Verse forty-one. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, "The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt." And he said to him, "You have judged rightly." Then turning toward the woman he said to Simon, "Do you see this woman? I entered your house, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your time now as we come before your word. We ask that you would speak to us that you would teach us and guide us to all truth. Lord, that we might have our hearts ministered to and that we would be transformed in this process. So, Lord, help us to set aside any distractions that we might have and let us give our hearts attention to you as we hear now from your word. Help us, Lord, to be engaged. and Give us, Lord, teachable spirits. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 36 of this story really sets the context for us. And this is what Luke writes. He says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Immediately this verse sets the scene. We're told that a Pharisee, whose name that we will discover, Simon, is throwing a banquet that evening. And he invites for Jesus to attend, presumably, as the guest of honor. See, it wouldn't have been uncommon that when a respected religious teacher from out of town was in your hometown, that they would have a celebration for him. And yet, on this occasion, this wasn't just any ordinary teacher. This was Jesus of Nazareth, whose fame had spread throughout all of Galilee. They would have heard of this Jesus, the one who cast out demons, who heals the sick, who gives sight to the blind, is a prophet of God, the one who teaches with authority. This Jesus where multitudes of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and Enomea and Tyre and Sidon and from all over would come just to see him. Jesus has become a very public figure. Even a controversial one. And so his reputation precedes him here. And so this would be a big thing as it involves our Lord. This wasn't a private party. This wasn't going to be an intimate dinner that you would have at home. This was going to be a block party. See, dinner was usually held in the courtyard of a home. So where special guests on the invitation list would recline around the table, uninvited guests of all different backgrounds and in town could also attend so this dinner was the social event of the evening. Now, in those days, the purpose of a meal was much different than in our day. See, when we gather to eat, food is primarily why we're there. So in our day, people live to eat rather than eat to live. And that's why you have things called foodies, Okay. And it's not uncommon for someone to halt others from eating until they can get the perfect picture of the food on their phone, right? And so we Instagram our food. There are food blogs. We talk about food even when we're eating something else. (laughs) Food is an important part of our culture. But for people in the time of Christ, eating was secondary. What was primary was social interaction. The goal behind a communal meal was to have dialogue, to share ideas with one another, to have theological discussion. In fact, they would recline at the table as they ate. And that's what we're told here in verse 36. And that is intentional for its social purposes. See, what that would look like is they would almost lie down with their feet sprawled out. And they would lean on something cushioned with their left elbow. And all the while, the right hand would be free to eat food that was before them. It was a posture of relaxation for the people to be there a while in order to talk. So it was customary for banquets like this one to be an open invitation. And people would come in as they pleased. And they would be on the periphery even though they're not eating, just to overhear the conversations that were taking place around the table. So that's the sort of banquet that takes place here. The curious thing about all of this is that it was Simon, a Pharisee of all people, who invites for Jesus to be at this dinner. Simon was part of this exclusive group Known as the Pharisees of no more than a few thousand. They were the law keepers of their day. They were those who set the moral standard in that day. They were the legalists of that day. And yet, they were the enemies of Jesus. Suspicious of him. And at this point, hostile toward him. As they conspired to put our Lord to death. And so, it raises the question... Why would Simon, a Pharisee, invite Jesus to be at this dinner? Simon is certainly intrigued by Jesus, but he was not in favor of him. At best, he wanted to probe Jesus, who had this reputation of being a prophet, and see what he's all about. And at worst, he sought to incriminate our Lord. In fact, there were many instances in the gospel accounts where the Pharisees challenged Jesus. They tried to trap him with his own words so that they might discredit his teaching and thereby condemn himself. And I believe that Simon had similar intentions, and we'll see that as the story unfolds. But you notice what is not found in this opening scene. There is a glaring omission... That we find here that leads us to believe that Simon's motives were less than pure. What was this omission? It was this omission of hospitality shown to Jesus. There are basic rules of hospitality that applies to the host, whether in that day or in our day. Or typically when guests come as the host, you show up at the door to greet them. You say hi, you shake their hand, and maybe give them a high five, you give them a pound, you, you give them a big hug, okay? These are things that we expect of a host in hosting a dinner party like this. And yet, here in this account, none of the common courtesies are extended to Jesus. And our Lord would later confirm this. Upon his arrival at Simon's house, Jesus should have been received uh, as a welcomed guest. And he should have gotten the customary welcome as that. Beginning with the greeting of a kiss on both cheeks, which is typical of a Middle Eastern greeting even today. Then there should have been a basin of water in which to rinse the dust collected from the road on his feet. And especially honored guests typically received the assistance of a servant in the household who would remove his sandals, wash his feet, dry them with a towel, and even apply a small amount of perfume. As well, there should have been an anointing of him with some kind of oil as a gesture of respect and hospitality in welcoming him. And yet, no kiss. No water for the feet. No anointing for his head. In no way has Jesus been properly received as a guest in this man's home. And that will be significant as we will find. So while we don't know much about Simon, we can draw conclusions about his attitude toward Christ simply for what he failed to do for our Lord. He likely had impure motives. And yet Jesus, knowing Simon's heart, because he is the omniscient Lord, he accepts his invitation anyway to come to his home, to share an evening with him. Because he has a purpose for him. So picture for me a moment what's happening here. Jesus, this celebrity figure, is in town. Simon, the Pharisee, wants to dine with Jesus. And the people of town hear this, and so they make arrangements to go and to see this Jesus of Nazareth that they've heard about. And so the spectators are there. And there's this banquet going on, there's eating, and people are overhearing conversations take place. And presumably, everyone is in a good mood. It's a party, it's a festive occasion here. But that mood would soon change. Because we're told that, behold, a woman of the city came. We don't know her name. She is simply called a sinner. Three times she is given that designation in this passage. That was her identity. She bore the scarlet letter, as it were. And was called sinner because the sin that she committed was so egregious and so public for all to see. That was how she was known. And for a woman to be called a sinner was a euphemism for being a prostitute in that time and culture. That was her trade. She was a professional adulteress. Immoral, perverse, impure, living a, a flagrantly sinful life at a public level. And it says that this woman was a woman of the city. She lived there. Everybody knew her. That's where she worked and she was known to all. This kind of woman would not be invited to this sort of banquet. She was the worst of the worst of sinners. You have to understand that in that culture of the Middle East, all a woman has is her reputation. That's it. If she doesn't have that reputation, she doesn't have a chance at all. I read of a 13-year-old girl in Somalia who was accused of adultery. Human rights workers were telling the public that she was sexually assaulted. But without trial or jury, she was stoned to death for simply being a victim of a crime against her, 13 years old. Friends, this woman lived in a much more unforgiving time 2,000 years ago. There is no way this woman should have been there But she was there. Why she came is because she heard that Jesus would be at the Pharisee's house. And she had a plan. It says that she came with an alabaster flask or vial filled with very costly perfume, which she wanted to pour on the head of Jesus. That was her goal. And so in verse 38, we're told that she's made it inside because it's likely an evening event. There were candles lit, and in some places it was darker than others. And so she slips in and wasn't immediately noticed by people who would have known her. And perhaps looking around the room for Jesus, she finds our Lord. And it says in verse 38, she stands behind him at his feet. She surveys the room, she spots Jesus, and she takes her position at the feet of Jesus as he was reclined, standing there, wondering how she was going to get to this place where she could anoint his head with this perfume, which she so desperately wanted to do. But as she stands there, contemplating what to do, unexpectedly, she starts to cry. She's not simply tearing up. She is weeping. The tears are from the brokenness over who she was, what she had done, the sin that she had committed against God. But there were also tears over the fact that she is in the presence of the Savior, the only one who could wash away her sins and cleanse her from unrighteousness. And she looks down and she realizes that she is weeping on the feet of Jesus and has soaked them in her tears. So, Catching herself, she lets down her hair and she begins to wipe away the tears from our Lord's feet. And this would have been astonishing because all Jewish women in public were required to wear their hair up. To let their hair down in front of another man was shameful. And it would actually be grounds for divorce. But do you understand that this woman doesn't see anyone else in this room? She is not conscious of herself or anyone for that matter. But the Lord at that moment, lost in the wonders of who he is, This was a shameless affection for Christ. And all she wants to do is worship him. But she's not finished. It says that she kissed his feet. She didn't kiss him on the cheek or on the forehead. She humiliated herself and kissed him on his dirty feet. And then she breaks open this alabaster perfume... And she pours it, again, not on his head as she intended to, but on his feet. Do you picture it? Can you see what's going on? Imagine a prostitute comes uninvited in the middle of your dinner party and disrupts the celebratory mood of that evening. And begins to weep aloud and cause a scene. Can you imagine the shock that ripples through that house? For these guests, they're seeing this spectacle unfold before them. This sinful woman acting so unbecoming. They see her come in tears and she's pouring her tears on the teacher's feet. And then bending over and drying the tears with her hair. Kissing his feet. Pouring perfume on our Lord. She is a self-forgetful mess here. And Simon sees this. And he responds. You notice in verse 39 how he responds. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. Notice he spoke to himself. He didn't speak to Jesus. He didn't speak to the woman. He didn't speak to the others. This was him speaking to his own heart, saying, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And he concludes, well, the fact that Jesus allows her to touch him tells us that he is obviously not a prophet. But right at that moment, as Simon thinks this, Jesus says to Simon in verse 40, Simon, I have a question for you. At that point, he probably should have thought, okay, well, maybe he is a prophet, okay? Okay. He got caught just thinking, okay? How does that happen? No thought is safe from God. Jesus called them out because he knew what Simon was saying in his heart. And so he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon he plays it cool. Say it, teacher. Okay. So our Lord says in verse 41, a certain money lender, a creditor, had two debtors. Our Lord he tells a parable here. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both now, which of them will love him more? This simple story here. Know this, a denari was one day's wage. So in this story, one got a loan of 500 days wages, two years of income almost. The other got a loan of 50 days wages, almost two months of income. Both were in this debt, one obviously more significant than the other. They both couldn't repay the debt. And so the moneylender graciously forgave the debt of both men. One with, we'll say, $100,000 worth of debt. The other $10,000. Both paid for now by this man. And so Jesus asked this question, which of them would love him more? Do you see what Jesus is getting at here? He's not talking about economics. Our Lord is teaching about the gospel here. He speaks to the great debt that we owe to God because of our sin. The Bible teaches that when you and I sin, the consequence for our sin before a holy and just God is eternal judgment. This is why Paul says in Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. He's speaking of this debt that we are working to pay off. No matter how sorry we feel, no matter our confession, no matter how much forgiveness we ask for, this debt must be paid for. Realize that we owe such a massive debt to God because of our sin that we would never be able to pay it off in this lifetime. Do you realize that? It is an eternal, infinite debt that those who are unrepentant will spend forever trying to pay off in hell. That is why hell is forever. And they will never be able to do so because this debt is so enormous before a holy God. See, we were like these two debtors in this story who realized that we can't pay it. No amount of sacraments, no amount of good works that you do in your life. No amount of religion can ever pay this debt. But the gospel tells us that like the creditor, God has forgiven our debt in Christ. How? How? That question and the answer to that question reveals the generous heart of God for all to see. See, Jesus talks about a creditor who has forgiven the debt of these men. No strings attached, no payment, no way to merit it. It was freely done. They owed all this money, and the money lender says, you don't have to pay. But the reality is, someone has to pay, right? It always costs. That debt doesn't just go away. right? If I lent you 50 dinars. And you can't pay. And I say, I forgive the debt. I've incurred that debt now. That cost is transferred to me. That person doesn't pay, but I pay. And to understand that concept is to understand the gospel and to have insight into the forgiveness of God and what it cost Him, because it did cost Him. When God forgave our sins, He then incurred the debt, and Jesus Christ, he died to pay it. The debt of condemnation in hell was what we owed, and it doesn't go away. It still had to be paid for, but the forgiver now incurs it and pays it. So it's not just forgiveness and it's done. It's forgiveness and then the debt is transferred now to the forgiver, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he came down from heaven to earth to pay that debt. When he would go to the cross and he would bear the judgment that was ours to bear for our sin and rose from the grave. And on the basis of this payment made by God, our debt can be forgiven. When we repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, see what Jesus is illustrating to Simon is that Simon, outwardly, this woman, yes, is 10 times as sinful as you. She is the 500 sinner, and Simon, you're the 50 sinner, but at the end of the day, you're both sinners. You're both guilty. You're both debtors, and God will forgive those debts by grace through faith in himself. Now, the question is this, and this is the punchline. Simon, which of them would love him, the forgiver, more? Who's going to have the greater love for this creditor? Who will love much? It says, Simon answered in verse 43. And this is why I prefer the NASB translation for this one. Who will love more, verse 43, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. That's the right answer. You've said it. And that's it. The one who loves more is the one who is forgiven more. The one who loves much is the one who has been forgiven much. Great love comes from great forgiveness. That's the principle. And that's what's happening at this event. And it all begins to make sense when we understand this. In verse 44, Jesus turned to the woman... But still speaking to Simon, he says, Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Again, customarily, there was both a basin for foot washing and a towel to dry them. Our Lord says, Simon, you didn't even give me water to wash my feet. No water. No towel. This woman... Supplied the water and the towel. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is why this woman is acting as she does. She's been forgiven. That's why she's here you notice that little statement in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. In the Greek, that's in the perfect tense. Meaning that forgiveness, the forgiveness that he extends didn't happen right then and there. The grammar tells us that it's in the past. Perfect tense means something happened in the past with continuing effects. She had already been forgiven Prior to this moment. And what Luke doesn't tell us here is that somehow this woman has already encountered Jesus. She has either been there in the crowds that he as he has taught in town and she has heard his message, or maybe there's been some sort of personal encounter where she has been convicted of her sins and our Lord preached the gospel to her, like the woman at the well. But at some point. She met Jesus and she repented of her sin and believed and the guilt at that moment was gone and the shame was gone and her former life was gone. She was different and the former longings for the world and sin are gone And instead, longings for righteousness and the things of God and holiness began to occupy her heart. And she was swept away with the affection for the Lord over everything else in this world. This man that she had come to see has given to her something that she has never received in her life. Forgiveness of sins. It's why she's there. Having been forgiven, she came there to find Jesus, to thank him. With what is most likely the most precious possession that she owns with this alabaster jar. She is there in the company of people who have no regard for her whatsoever. Only contempt. But she is there because of one man. And the grace and the forgiveness and the acceptance that he has shown her. She was swept away with gratitude. Swept away with affection and love for the one who had forgiven her. So much so that she couldn't contain herself. See, Jesus points Simon and Jesus points us to her as an example and says that's what a transformed life looks like. And you can't explain away this woman's behavior any other way than that she's come to know the forgiveness of God for her sin. This extravagant love that she shows for Jesus is a result of her forgiveness. Verse 50 makes it clear, where our Lord says, your faith has saved you. Not your works, not your tears, not your anointing. It's your faith that saved you. Go in peace. She is saved by faith in Christ and has come to know his forgiveness. And her love would be a confirmation of this forgiveness and salvation that she's now received from our Lord. And our Lord affirms this. And, she, and He blesses her and tells her to go in peace. You are saved. That's the story. It is a beautiful story. But what does this mean for us? Just a couple of concluding thoughts. At first glance, this story appears to be about Jesus who has an appointment with a Pharisee to be at his banquet, when in fact, this was a divine appointment for this Pharisee. Our Lord wanted an encounter with Simon, and he would orchestrate events for this unlikely guest to join them so that Jesus might minister to him. Jesus' purpose in having this woman at this party was to both warm our hearts, but also to shatter our categories. See, through this account, Jesus challenges what people in that day ever thought about God and sin and salvation. And he challenges us likewise. Christ was using this incident to show that both the irreligious And the religious. The moral people. The people who think that they are good. They are all debtors. Who owe God. Because of their sin. And how they receive forgiveness is the same. It is through Jesus Christ himself. Our Lord wanted for Simon. For These readers, and for us to understand the depths of our sin. This is a word to us because we live in a time when there is a disappearance of this concept of sin in our world. It's so subtle, but you notice the way the terms are used now. Adultery is now called an affair, alcoholism is called a disease. Pride is no longer a vile. It is a virtue. a, A vice, I'm sorry. Churches no longer want to preach on sin because it's not politically correct. People will leave churches because it's not positive enough and they hear too much about it. But friends, let me tell you that we don't hear enough about the fact that we are sinners before God. And you see its effects in our lives. What happens is so oftentimes we're like Simon. We grade our lives on a curve. We say, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like her. See, we think that we're better than this prostitute. So we will read the story and read it completely detached from it. And yet we have to see ourselves in this story. And to see that this woman is like us. Oftentimes we have a mold of what we believe that a godly person looks like. They're the educated. They're the clean cut. They're culturally conservative. They're those who look like us. So that if a prostitute, if a drug dealer, if a gay couple came to our church service... Our initial reaction is like that of Simon and others. It is to say, they don't belong here. And we view them with suspicion. And there's a distance that we keep from them. There's no association at all that we want with them. But our Lord is reminding us, though the 50 sinner that you are, you are no better than the 500. When a newspaper posted the question, what's wrong with the world? A man by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote in response, writing, quote, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That is the attitude of someone who has grasped the gospel. We are the problem in this world. It is our sin. And though we have been redeemed by grace through faith and we are forgiven, we can never cease to see ourselves as nothing more than debtors who have been received by Christ. I want to tell you, it is only when we have a right view of ourselves can we live a life that pleases God, like this woman. You see, Jesus is calling for us to look at this prostitute, And calls for us to emulate her. In her lifestyle of sexual sin, she knew her sin. And yet she came to know Jesus. And that evening, everyone came to that place to party. But this woman came to go to church. She came because Jesus was there. And she came to worship him. She came to adore him. She came to praise Him. She came to thank Him. She came to honor Him. She came to glorify Him. Why? Because she's been forgiven much. Why are we here this morning? Are we here like her? Are we here with tears flowing with shame and gratitude? Are we here to give praise to Jesus? Are we here to offer up extravagant worship as one who has experienced the extravagant grace of God for the forgiveness of our sins, just like this woman? I want to tell you, the greater our sense of sin and that God has dealt with us in His mercy and that it came at the great cost of His Son, the greater the love that we will have for him in return. If your love for God is cold, it may well be because you have come to think that God owes us, and we are not those who are in debt and who have had their debt paid for. You see, Simon this woman are debtors, Sinners in need of grace. And so are we all. But in Christ, we've been forgiven. And as we come to know this, would the song of our hearts be like what the hymn writer writes. Take my love, my Lord I pour. At thy feet, its treasure store. Take myself, And I will be ever only all for thee. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and for the life of this woman. And we praise you for your grace upon her and how you show us what a transformed life looks like and is one that manifests in joy and gratitude and overwhelming love toward Christ. It isn't just that we do different things, it's that we are now different. It's that we're marked by this consuming love for Christ that desires to humble ourselves, to demonstrate an undying affection and lavish a self-sacrifice on his behalf. Lord, may we live those kind of lives filled with gratitude, filled with love for our Savior, filled with honor of you so that people will know that we too have been forgiven and that this is what a forgiven person looks like. And as we do so, would it draw the unbelieving world to yourself, that they would see their sin and that they would come to see Christ. And that they too can come to know his forgiveness. Lord, help us to go forth from here with a greater appreciation for the cross of Jesus Christ. For that we have been forgiven much. And as such, Lord, we desire to love much. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.